Please note, this is part two of a two-part episode. We suggest that you listen to part one before listening to this episode. One twenty-four this morning, the ferry boat Estonia suddenly sank into the icy waters of the Baltic Sea. The tragedy has united the peoples of Estonia, Sweden and Finland in grief. During daylight hours, helicopters again scanned the Baltic. Empty life vests evidence they were in the, the right place. was one of the worst disasters to his country in modern times. Helicopters ferried in the very few survivors. The suffering from severe hypothermia after hours spent in the darkness and the cold Baltic Rescuers have given up hope now of finding anyone else alive and will be concentrating on locating the Estonia on the sea. Exactly what caused this disaster is still unclear. Estonia's to set up a joint inquiry with Sweden and Finland to sift through all the evidence and establish the cause. The 18th of September, 1994, was the beginning of a new era for Swedish politics. The Socialist Party had just won the general election. A week or so later, on the evening of the 27th of September, the Conservative Party had a get-together with its staff as a thank you to everyone who had been a part of the government during the last four years. Later that same night, the outgoing Prime Minister received a phone call informing him of the sinking of MS Estonia in the middle of the Baltic Sea. This is Nordic True Crime. The next morning, the Prime Ministers and Presidents of Finland, Estonia and Sweden met up to determine what steps should be taken in the immediate aftermath of the tragedy. After the meeting was over, the Swedish Prime Minister at the time, Karl Bildt, said in a press conference that he would do whatever was necessary to make sure that the dead who were still inside the ship were recovered from the depths of the ocean in order to receive proper burials in respect to their families and friends. This, he said, was something of great importance to him. Just a few days later, the new Prime Minister, Ingvar Karlsson, stated that it was not only his intention to do everything he possibly could to recover the dead, but also the ship. Later, funerals and memorial ceremonies were held for the dead who were recovered from the Baltic Sea. But what exactly was going to happen to the victims of the tragedy who were still trapped?
trapped inside a Estonia at the bottom of the ocean? Would they, as promised by the heads of state, be brought home? In 1980, a Norwegian oil platform collapsed into the ocean, causing the death of 123 people. When the platform was dragged back up to the surface, the lifting machine unfortunately caused massive damage to the recovered bodies. So in reference to that particular disaster, it was then decided that MS Estonia would not be recovered from the ocean bed in order to spare family members the possible horrible sight of having to identify the badly damaged bodies of their loved ones. This was decided despite the fact that the Norwegian tragedy was completely different from the MS Estonia disaster and that there was no need for the next of kin to visually identify the victims. This could have been done in other ways, so they would never have to see the bodies of the victims if they didn't want to. And with this, the government began to change its way of thinking. They now proposed that since they most likely could never recover all of the bodies, they simply wouldn't recover anyone. They deemed this to be fair to the families of the dead who would never be found and brought home. To help the government with this dilemma, an ethical council was formed to discuss the moral aspects of this proposal. It consisted of a representative from the church, doctors, unions, the foreign minister, journalists and other politicians. The council was shown graphic images of the damaged bodies from the Norwegian oil platform disaster, and this seemingly greatly affected the committee members. They then came to the conclusion that their recommendation would be to leave the ship as it was in order for the grieving families to try and find some peace without the added stress of recovering the dead. This conclusion was made despite no one having seen any pictures or videos from the actual disaster they were tasked with discussing, but they still made a decision based entirely on images from a completely different incident. Added to this, there was no documentation available from the Ethical Council studies. This, for unknown reasons, had been destroyed. There was in fact only the actual official report, which was handed over to the government. One very noteworthy factor to be taken into consideration is that the Ethical Council didn't consist of any representatives from the friends and families of the victims and their wishes were never considered. Even though Emma's Estonia sank in the middle of the Baltic Sea, 
the actual location of the sinking of the ship was not in a particularly deep area of the ocean. In fact, when some of the survivors recalled seeing the ship standing upright like a church tower, their eyes were not deceiving them. The ship was in fact standing upright on the bottom of the seabed, approximately 80 meters down from the surface of the ocean. Weeks passed without a final decision being made on what to do with the recovery of the ship, and on the 2nd of December, 1994, the Swedish government commissioned a diving expedition to go down to the wreck to further investigate the condition of the bodies trapped within the vessel. There's another body as you go straight through the doors, yeah? Oh, there's loads of them there, yeah? Okay, mate. Are you okay? Just below you, to your right, I think there may be a body. You've got two bodies here. Is it possible to get a close-up for the doctor, please? Okay, what they would like you to do is approach one of the bodies uh, and they need a shot of the face on your hot camera. It turned out that they were not in as bad as a condition as they had feared and many of the dead could easily be identified. Hundreds of people were found by the divers as they swam around the ship, bodies which could have easily been brought back up to the surface, but instead they were just left behind. For some reason, the video of the diving expedition was never actually shown to the people in charge of the investigation, but instead explained to them in much detail and gore, which led to many of the decision makers choosing not to see the footage as they were advised not to look at it for their own peace of mind, unless they absolutely had to. On the 15th of December 1994, the Swedish government had come to a decision. They would not salvage MS Estonia or any of the victims trapped on the ship. The site would now be considered as a grave and, astonishingly enough, to make sure that the burial place was appropriately respected, they wanted to cover the whole ship with concrete. The families of the victims were outraged. Not only had the government completely disregarded their initial promises, but the fact that their loved ones were now going to be permanently trapped inside a shipwreck as well as forged in concrete devastated them. For some, this was just too much to bear. The following clip is from a Q&A meeting between the Department of Communications and friends and families of the victims. The woman speaking is from the government, and what she says is that the decision should be treated with respect. 
Det som är avgörande tycker jag är att redan från början försöka visa respekt också för regeringens beslut. Du pratade om respekt. As you can tell from the end of the clip, friends and family present at the meeting found the government's request for respect laughable. And perhaps more concerning was that they felt that the government had once again disregarded them. The government's decision was met with unprecedented protests and demonstrations, and in the end, the concrete tomb proposal was withdrawn. Time passed by, and weeks turned into months, and months turned into years, when in November of 1998, approximately four years after the tragedy, a huge video conference was held in Sweden with the survivors and families. An analysis group had been appointed, mainly due to the volume and scale of protests which had taken place and it was now their turn to present the report and recommendations. The report stated that every effort possible should be taken to retrieve the trapped bodies so that they could receive a proper burial, in respect to both them and their families. Finally, people felt that someone was listening to them, and that their loved ones would soon be home. But that would, of course, only happen if the government took the advice of the analysis group. But they didn't. So in February of 1999, during another video conference, the government stated that their initial decision to not salvage either the ship or the victims would stand. The reasoning behind this decision was made on the basis that families of the Estonian victims had allegedly pleaded for the bodies not to be recovered from the ocean. The government issued an official apology, stating that the bodies should have been recovered directly after the incident and that they can only state their regret over this mistake. What was the actual cause of the accident? Since MS Estonia had sunk in international waters, the aftermath had become a political nightmare. Never before had anything like this happened, so there was no predetermined protocol advising of what to do next. In order to try and figure out what had led to the sinking of the ferry, an international commission of inquiry consisting of representatives from Estonia, Sweden and Finland was formed. The Estonian communication minister, Andy Meister, was appointed as the president of the commission. However, since Estline, which was the shipping company that owned MS Estonia, was also half-owned by the Estonian government, 
This meant that in appointing Meister, there was a clear conflict of interest. But surprisingly, this didn't seem to be a problem for anyone involved. The commission quickly concluded what had been the cause of the accident. According to them, the front visor or bow visor of the ship had been ripped off by the strong waves and during this process, it had dragged down the car deck ramp, allowing water to freely pour into the ship. In 1997, three years after the disaster, the complete investigation was presented in a report. The odd thing about the report, possibly even suspicious, is that this very same reason for the sinking of the ship had also been given by the Swedish Prime Minister the evening after the tragedy whilst the rescue operation was still underway. How could he possibly have known this if no investigation had taken place? During the 1970s, passenger ferry traffic in the Baltic Sea was booming. In order to try and keep up with the demands, the maritime authorities in both Sweden and Finland formed their own practices. Together, they decided that the ferries which sailed the short distance between Sweden and Finland and those who were no further than 20 nautical miles from the shore would be excluded from some safety regulations. However, this agreement was never made in writing, which meant that there was no written restriction found in any of the ship's certificates indicating that they were part of any exclusion. Furthermore, when the ferry Vasa King was bought by Estline and renamed MS Estonia, there was no information to be found in the ship's certificate indicating that it was not deemed safe for longer journeys on the open sea. But since the Estonian shipping inspection process wasn't fully up and running at that time, as the country had only just been declared independent from the Soviet Union in 1991, the task of the inspection landed on the doorstep of Bureveritas in France. They, however, never noticed any of the safety issues with the ship. For example, that there was no waterproof gate behind the front visor of the ship, which would have stopped water flowing freely into the car deck. This would have more than likely resulted in allowing valuable extra time for the ship to sail for the safety of an emergency harbour in the event of the front visor being damaged. Nonetheless, it was Finland who was accountable for the legal responsibility of allowing MS Estonia to sail. This is due to the fact that it was Finland who wrote the certificate and it was therefore them who were at fault for not adding any restrictions to the document. In 
However, many had their doubts about the Commission's findings and their explanations for the sinking of MS Estonia. And it was not only the families of the victims who thought this, but also politicians who put forward the motion in Parliament for the need for a second independent investigation. People were now beginning to become very suspicious due to the many flaws uncovered in the initial investigation. For example, a shipping expert stated that it would be impossible for the boat to list and sink that fast unless the water originally entered the ship from under the car deck. But that would mean that there had to be a hole underneath the ship for this theory to be correct. The commission countered this by claiming that the six ventilation openings on both sides of the ship, which led down below the car deck via the ventilation drum, filled up with water after the ship listed at 40 degrees. But there were survivors who had been staying underneath the car deck, who stated that water had been pouring into their cabins at an alarming rate before the ship started to list, indicating pressure which would more than likely have come from some sort of breach somewhere underneath the car deck. Therefore, disproving the theory that the water entered the area beneath the car deck after the ship began to list. In addition to this, some of the surviving crew members stated that the car ramp was still in an upright position with the front visor in place and in a lockdown position when the water started to pour in. And this, of course, goes completely against the official version of events, as they concluded that the visor had been ripped off at its hinges by the waves and that the ramp had been dragged down as a consequence of this. This could easily have been disproved by the videotape made by the divers who swam down to film MS Estonia during the initial investigation. But for some reason, several areas of the ship were never filmed. When questioned why the filming of the boat was incomplete, the Commission simply stated that there was no need to film all areas as they already knew what had caused the accident. Remember, this was the worst ferry catastrophe which had occurred in Europe since World War II, so why would all of the governments involved decide not to carry out a thorough investigation of every inch of the ship? even if only to put an end to the rumours that the official explanation might not actually be what really happened. Added to this, the Commission decided to declare all of the survivors victims, and because of this move, they were no longer to be considered as witnesses, because victims, according to the Commission, could not be fully trusted to describe exactly what had happened, before, during, 
or after an incident of this nature, meaning that their testimonies were invalid. When the report was complete, they handed it over to the minister in charge, and that was where their assignment ended. This meant, in practice, that they considered their role complete, and that they wouldn't answer any further questions regarding the report or the investigation, however valid the question may be. And as for the minister who received the report, he too couldn't answer any questions nor order a new review as it was a technical report, which meant that the matter was judicially locked. Many agreed that was a very convenient way to avoid uncomfortable confrontations. Instead of diving down to the wreck and carrying out a detailed investigation, the three countries involved, Estonia, Finland and Sweden, declared the site a burial ground and created a law that made it illegal for any citizen of these countries to dive down to the ship. This in itself was a unique move, as no other shipwreck in the world was or is covered by a similar law. The law meant that even if new evidence was presented and the prosecutor was to raise a criminal case and dive down to carry out investigations, he or she would risk two years in prison. In order for anyone from any of the three countries to dive down to the wreck, they all had to agree on this. In 2004, in an interview with Swedish television program Uppdragranskning, the Estonian Economy and Communications Minister at the time, Melis Attonen, said the following. If we start to open this case again and again, it just hurts the people and it gives no new information. It, is, it gives no good, just a just lot of sadness for the people. So do you say that under no circumstances whatsoever would you agree to go down and make divings down to the wreck? I would say that this case is closed, yes. Estonia would say no, yes. As far as the three governments were concerned, nobody had any interest in investigating the wreck further and the case was closed. But after the airing of the documentary in 2004, a man came forward with some new information. He had kept quiet for 10 years, but after watching the show, the memories came flooding back and he decided that he could no longer hold his silence. His name was Lennart Henriksson and he contacted a reporter working for the Swedish television station responsible for producing the documentary. He was employed by the Swedish customs agency in Stockholm for 38 years 
and in the later part of his career, he was in charge of port customs. He said that in September of 1994, he was called to a meeting with the customs director. At that meeting, he was told that there would be a car arriving on one of the ships in the harbour and that it was not to be searched. This was something that he had never encountered in his career, so he questioned why this was to happen and who had made the decision. He was told that the order came from the very top and that he was just to do as he was told and keep quiet. Leonard felt that he had no choice but to carry out his orders, even though he felt very uneasy about the situation. The car was to arrive on the 14th of September, and on that day, Leonard decided to go down and see that it got through without being checked, as he didn't want to get anyone else involved. He had been given the name of the driver and a clear description of the car. He then saw it pull up and he walked over to have a talk with the driver. He told him that he had to perform a fake search of the car, just so that it wouldn't look too suspicious, and the driver agreed to let him look through some boxes. Leonard said that inside the boxes were something he described as military electronics, such as meters and radio equipment. He then gave the man a look and closed the trunk and let him pass through and drive into Sweden. The car in question had just arrived at the port on MS Estonia. On the 20th of September, Leonard received a call from his boss informing him that the same thing would happen again and that he was to do the same as before. This time, the car was much bigger. Once again, he looked inside and saw the same military-type equipment. And once again, the car had traveled over the Baltic Sea on board MS Estonia. The following week, the same week that MS Estonia sank, Lennart was on holiday and claimed that he didn't know if another car with the same type of military equipment had passed through customs without being searched. In a taped conversation between Lennart and his former superior, Stig Sandelin, it was quite clear that what Lennart had told the reporter was indeed true. Lennart told Stig that he felt bad and wondered if what he had done made him partly responsible for the sinking of the ship, if it indeed was one of the cars with military equipment that had anything to do with the tragedy. Stig tried to calm him by saying it wasn't his decision, since the orders came from the commander-in-chief, and since there was no hole in the boat, referring to MS Estonia, the classified equipment couldn't be the reason behind the sinking as there were no explosives in the car, as far as he knew. He also claimed that the cargo came from Russia 
and was being delivered to the intelligence services. In 1994, the Soviet Union had just collapsed, and excess Russian military equipment was being sold by the ex-commanders from the abandoned Russian posts in Estonia. Some of the same equipment was then smuggled on board MS Estonia and brought over the border to Sweden. Back then, this was a relatively easy operation to carry out. Estonia's first ever commander-in-chief, Alexander Einzel, who had lived in the USA since World War II and who had carved out a military career for himself in the US, serving in both the Korea and Vietnam Wars, was interviewed in the Swedish television program Uppdragranskning, again in 2004. Was the situation in Estonia at the time such that uh, uh, smuggling of military equipment could take place on, on the ferry? Oh, yes, yes, no question about it. Almost anything could have been there. I don't think there were any controls at all. That's your impression? Oh, yes. I, I, I can say with certainty that the controls were so minimal that anybody wanted to get anything on there, they could have done it. You make me feel that anything was possible at this time. It was, right? absolutely anything. This was a madhouse, sir. Several former customs workers had also verified that it was relatively easy to smuggle goods over the border into Sweden. These goods mostly consisted of cigarettes and alcohol, but sometimes radioactive material and, of course, secret military equipment was known to be smuggled through customs. We once again hear Alexander Einzel discuss this in the same interview with Uppdragranskning. We have information that on two occasions prior to the disaster, there was military technology on board Estonia. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. I never, I haven't heard this before, but that doesn't surprise me at all. And this was only, was only weeks before the disaster. Uh, was did it appear in any papers or anything? Goes no. this was in in what channels? In some intel channels? Where hasn't been hasn't been made official in any way. This is information we have. We once again hear Alexander Einzel with Uppdragranskning. Okay. Well, uh, if your information is correct, that gives uh, another reason, absolutely good reason, why this investigation should be reopened. Why? To find out who did it, why. We have over 800 people that, that perished there. That is serious. We're not living in a totalitarian system. We live in democracy, and I think the people have a right to know. The Swedish people, the Finns, the Estonians, the world has a right to know. Despite the fact that it was confirmed that there was classified material being brought over the border, officials claimed that there was no such cargo on board MS Estonia when she sank on the 28th of September. In the year 2000, a German investigative reporter called Jutta Rabe decided to dive down to the wreck and take a look. 
She had a team of 12 divers and 6 underwater experts with her. The whole expedition was financed by an American millionaire called Greg Bemis, and since none of them were citizens of the countries who created the diving law, it was perfectly legal for their expedition to go ahead as it was in international waters. However, on the day of the dive, when Jutta arrived at the location where MS Estonia was resting at the bottom of the Baltic Sea, both the Swedish and Finnish Coast Guard was waiting for them. They did their very best to try and disturb and interrupt the expedition, and even boarded their ship, explaining to them that since this was a crime in Sweden, if they were ever to visit a country in the future, then they would be charged for having broken the law. They also even tried to make them leave by turning the water cannons on the group. But Jutta and her team were not going to be scared of that easily and continued with their dive down to the wreck. Once there, they quickly found a big hole in the bottom of the boat, which looked very much like it had been blown open. And it was then that they decided to cut out some samples to send for testing to see if any traces of explosive could be found. The samples were sent to 10 highly regarded institutes and 8 of them found traces of explosives. Another person who had been taking great interest into the sinking of the ship was former sea captain and senior officer of the Swedish Maritime Administration, Stefan Torschell. He had spent hours and hours reading documents as well as interviewing survivors and others who had been involved with the vessel. According to him, just two days after the ship had sank, a diving team consisting of Swedish, Finnish and British military personnel were sent down to the wreck in secrecy. This was carried out at the same time as the government was investigating whether or not to recover the bodies of the dead, as well as appointing the ethical group. It is thought by many that this was only done in order to buy some more time for the divers to finish their job. When the official diving expedition was carried out two months after the sinking, they had filmed from the bottom of the sea and about roughly 150 meters away from the wreck, there lay on the ocean floor the railing system which was used to hold up the car ramp and it was clear to see that it had been cut off. It was also clear to see that someone had been down there, opened the ramp, extracted any possible classified material and had tried to cover up the hole in the bottom of the ship with tons of mud. It also came to light that the remembrance ceremony which was held for the victims at MS Estonia's resting site, was in fact a decoy. The place where the friends and families were taken to throw flowers into the sea to pay their last respects to the loved ones was not the real location of the sinking. 
the real site of the disaster was miles away, but since there were divers down at the wreck trying to cover up the ship at the same time as the ceremony was taking place, they held the memorial far from the actual site, as to avoid raising suspicions. Yet again, another strange and mysterious thing occurred. Six Estonian crew members, who had been registered on different survivors lists, one of which was in a hospital in Sweden, simply vanished. One of the men's families had even been notified that he had survived the accident, but he never came home. He just disappeared without a trace. Were the lists wrong, or did they actually survive the disaster? According to Stefan Toschel, he had been in contact with six shipbuilding experts, and none of them could explain why MS Estonia sank in the way she did, and why it happened so quickly. They all said that it was both physically and technically impossible. Toschel also said that in 2006, there was a debate scheduled to be held regarding MS Estonia, but that very same morning the Swedish government decided to carry out a new investigation into the tragedy. And due to this, the debate never took place, because this had of course been the end goal of the debate, to find out the answers to the many unanswered questions. So people were satisfied with this news, and waited patiently for the results. However, what they didn't tell the public at the time, was that this new investigation was to be based only on the conclusions made by the Commission of Inquiries, and they were not going to come to their own or even new conclusions as to what had happened. So their job was basically to give the most plausible explanation as to why the ship sank, based on the Commission's original findings. The team who had been assigned the task decided to build a small replica of MS Estonia, which was about 5 meters long, and without a front visor, but with a ramp for the car deck. They carried out an experiment in a special pool, which was 90 meters long, and whilst the ship was sailing, they lowered the ramp with a remote control. The water rushed in, but the boat didn't turn on its side as MS Estonia did, but instead turned upside down. And this is exactly what every expert had previously claimed would happen the air below the car deck would force the boat upside down, where it would then float. For it to sink in the manner that it did, there must have been a breach somewhere below the car deck. But in 2008, the media were in attendance at the same pool as the new investigation team carried out the earlier experiment with the replica ship. But this time, the boat didn't turn upside down, it listed and rested on its side before sinking. The reporters filmed everything and interviewed the people involved 
and many were now convinced that it had been proven that MS Estonia sank in the way described by the initial commission. But what they failed to mention was that on this replica ship, they had mounted a vent on the underside of the vessel. So when they pressed the button and the ramp fell down, the vent was also opened, allowing the water to enter from below. This was mentioned in the official report, but only as a small footnote, so it was in fact missed by many. But if there was in fact a hole in the bottom of MS Estonia, then what caused it? The main theory is that the hole was caused by an explosion of some sort from top-secret military equipment. It is even thought that there was maybe a collision with a mine or submarine. This theory does have some credibility, as that same night there was a Finnish military exercise taking place, so it is possible that MS Estonia collided with a submarine carrying out a top-secret training exercise, and the country in question wanted to completely distance itself from the incident. The official version is of course, as mentioned earlier in the episode, that the wind was so strong that it caused the waves to rip off the front visor, which then dragged the car ramp down, allowing water to openly flow in, which then led to the eventual sinking of the ship. That could possibly be the case, but why are there still so many unanswered questions? Why wasn't a meticulous investigation carried out in the public eye? And why, when people started to question the official version of events, didn't they just prove that there was no hole at the bottom of the ship? Why did they try to cover up the ship? And why did it take the somewhat radical decision of writing a law which made it illegal to visit the site. And of course, why did it take so long before the official diving expedition took place? Even when a ship sinks, there is still a high chance that people will still be alive due to the many air pockets created throughout the different rooms on a boat. When this happens, you will normally have approximately three days of air before oxygen runs out. On MS Estonia, there was a possibility of up to a hundred people who could have still been alive after the ship had sunk. Russia, who had specially equipped ships and specially trained divers, had offered to send a team down to try and see if there were survivors trapped inside. But their offer seemingly went unanswered. Why was this offer not taken up? It had of course been confirmed that MS Estonia did transport military material and the Swedish customs agent at Arlanda Airport in Stockholm even testified 
that she had indeed witnessed military equipment being brought on board a Learjet and then flown away. Added to this, just minutes after the news of the sinking of MS Estonia was broadcast, that same unknown jet, which was parked at Arlanda Airport, took off and flew away, despite there being a flight ban in place at the time due to bad weather conditions. There were also rumors that some of the military material was taken to the USA. However, this has never been confirmed. Officials continue to deny that there was any transport of military material on the night that the ship sank and they believe that they have the proof to back their claims. A passenger ferry that transports military equipment is not in legal terms considered to be an actual passenger ferry, but instead a military ship which transports military material with passengers on board. This means that the normal rules don't apply and the military ship in question is therefore allowed, so to speak, to be sunk in terms of the language of war. That would also mean that the unknown passengers could in fact have been used as human shields against some sort of attack, if indeed there was an attack. And if this was in fact true, and was to become public news, then the price to pay would be colossal, all the way up to the top of the tree, not to mention the monetary damages. And money, as we know, is normally behind everything. So was there some kind of military attack on the ship? Or was it an act of terrorism? Or was it even an accidental explosion of some kind? These are questions which will more than likely never be answered. The day after the sinking, instead of ordering an independent international investigation commission, as is common with disasters of this nature, it was decided that the three countries involved, and them alone, would investigate the tragedy. Finland investigated its own maritime administration, Estonia the onboard crew, and Sweden the reasoning behind the sinking of the ship. It seemed to be a specifically considered approach, considering that Finland was responsible for lack of the safety certification of the ship, Estonia was part owner in the ship, and Sweden was most likely to be involved in the transportation of military equipment in secrecy. So it was hardly surprising that they couldn't find any wrongdoing. Added to this, none of the countries were allowed to get involved with another's investigation or even criticize them. Nobody has ever been charged or held responsible for the sinking of MS Estonia. Not one single person or organization. Instead, 
the three countries involved have put their blame entirely on the shipyard in Germany who built MS Estonia, claiming that they did a poor job when mounting the front visor. But the shipyard can never defend itself because it is illegal for them to dive down and investigate the ship further. Eight hundred and fifty-two victims and thousands upon thousands of their friends and families are still waiting for answers. Just one simple answer explaining what really happened could be enough for most. An answer which, much like Emma's Estonia, is buried deep down in the Baltic Sea unlikely to ever surface. Are you looking for headphones that provide quality sound, are stylish and have up to 9 hours battery life? Then Studio is the brand for you. At Studio, they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones as not just a tech device but also an accessory. Currently, the headphone market can offer you one of two things, style or tech. Fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality and high-tech variations are bulky and not design-oriented. Studio want to bridge that gap. While emphasizing their modern Scandinavian design, they also provide a product that matches the quality of even the highest-rated headphones on the market for a fraction of the cost. So head over to studio.com today. That's S-U-D-I-O dot com to receive a 15% discount off any purchase, including free worldwide shipping, using the discount code NORDICTRUECRIME or see the link in the show notes. Remember, that's studio.com. Are you a true crime junkie? Do you talk about true crime with your friends all of the time? And are there cases that have stuck with you for so many years because of geographic or emotional closeness? If so, then welcome to Fatalities. I'm Elisa Lucas, and this is the podcast where I explore true crime cases over tea with the help of my friends. Because without tea, friends, and good conversation, there's nothing but darkness and chaos. So grab a warm cup of tea and join me as my friends and I discuss the cases that have struck a chord with us and the related issues that might help us understand why such horrible crimes have occurred. The podcast is dropped every other Wednesday and is available on such podcatchers as Apple, Podbean, Spotify, and so much more. You may follow Fatalities on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, but don't forget that T's is spelled T-E-A-S, because here is where we spill the tea. Tea.